Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We continue our series in the book of Hebrews and in chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 23. Hebrews 11, 23. Just one verse. The faith of Moses' parents. Hebrews 11, 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come into your presence wanting you to speak to us by your word and by your spirit. We know, Lord, that these are true words. These are not the words of man. And we pray, Lord, that our minds will carefully understand, carefully interpret, and carefully apply this word of truth to our life. Grant to us to have the faith of Moses' parents. Grant to us to fear you, not to fear man, not to be afraid of any king's edict, any king's command, any sovereign's authority, but to fear you above all else. Grant us this, and may we understand your purposes in our life to withstand all temptation and all fear of man. In Christ, amen. Well, in this part of the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we come to a section which I think, if we examine the subsequent verses, not only on Moses, but on the other experiences and, and instances of faith from 23 to the end of the chapter, we have examples of those who did not fear physical death because they had eternity in view. If we could say that the previous examples he has given are primarily of those who persevered in faith until death, these examples now from verse 23 onward focus primarily on those who were able to maintain faith in the face of death, in the threat of death. Those first examples, they persevered until death, and then here they persevered in the face of actual execution or actual death. And this is what we have in our first example in verse 23. We have the example of not Moses, although Moses' name is here, but the example of the parents of Moses. After this, in 24 to 28, he will tell us about Moses and others. But right now, we're talking about parents, the parents of Moses, Amram and Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses, and what kind of faith they had, and what they did. Notice in verse 23, he says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Why? Because they saw he was a beautiful child. In this case, the faith of the parents is manifested because in what they did in relation to the preservation of Moses' life and what they knew was the will of God for Moses' life. The preservation of Moses' life and what they knew to be the will of God in Moses' life. They knew the will of God in re reference to Moses' life. They knew the will of God, I believe, in two ways, both in the physical way, but also in the spiritual way. When we read Exodus chapters 1 and 2, Exodus chapter 1 and through chapter 2, verse 10, we read there of the threat 
of the death of all of the male children of the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people, or the people of Israel, they had the threat of death because the Pharaoh and the Egyptians were afraid that the Hebrew people would become too numerous and overtake them and side with their enemies in a war. This is what the fear was. Pharaoh feared the Hebrew people because they were numerous. So what did, he, what did he say? He said, all of the male children, all of the boys, they are to be thrown into the Nile. Keep the girls because you can marry the girls and overpower the girls, but keep, don't keep the boys. Don't keep them because they could be warriors one day and they can withstand persecution from the Egyptians. So don't keep the boys. That was the decree. That was the edict. That was the command that came from the very top, the king of the nation, the pharaoh of the nation. He issued that edict, that decree. But what did the Hebrew midwives do, as well as the parents of many of the Hebrew children, the boys? They did not obey it. In the physical way, they did not obey it. And even Moses' parents did not obey it. They did not obey it in the physical way. That is, a king issued a command. A king issued a law, an edict. And he said, all Hebrew male boys must be executed or must be murdered, must be thrown into the Nile. They must be killed in that way. However, the many Hebrew people, they did not obey. The midwives did not obey and the parents of Moses did not obey that. And this teaches us that Moses' parents and the midwives and the many Hebrew people understood that whenever a superior issues a command, whenever a, a person of authority issues a command, and that command subverts the will of God, subverts the word of God, then we ought to obey God rather than men. This is what it says in, Hebrew, uh, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, for we ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. This is an example of the faith of Moses' parents that they believed it was more important to obey God and not fear, not be afraid of the command of the king. They wanted to obey God rather than men. The Bible teaches us that, which is true and obvious in many, many other cases. For example, if the parents are teaching a child, if the parents are teaching a child to, uh, let's say a 15-year-old child, to go to the store and steal, what should the 15-year-old do according to the Word of God? He should not steal anything in the store, even if the parents tell him. The parents are his authority. He should not do it. And what if we have a husband and wife situation and the husband says, wife, we need some extra money. Why don't you go and be a prostitute? What should the wife say? No, no, I, I will not do that. That's against uh, human nature. It's against natural law. It's against my conscience. But if she's a Christian, she'll say, no, it's against the Bible. I can't do that. I'm not gonna obey you, husband. And it goes up the ladder. It, even if it's a man. If a man is told, if a man is told by his employer, his supervisors in the workplace, if a man is told to practice corruption, to steal money from, from the company or from someone else in a, in, a, in a business deal or whatever, if he's told to do that, that man 
being under the authority of his managers, should say, no, I will not do that. That would be sin. I would be sinning against God. That is corrupt. I will not do that. And this is what they did. The parents of Moses. In the physical sense, they knew that it was wrong to murder babies. They knew that. And therefore they said, no, we're not going to do that. But I believe that there is also another way in which the parents of Moses demonstrated their faith. And that was what we read in Exodus 2, verse 2, that says that Moses was beautiful. That Moses was beautiful. Here also, in Hebrews eleven twenty three, it says, they saw he was a beautiful child. That he was a beautiful child. But in what sense was he beautiful? In what sense does the text say this? Is it saying it because he was handsome as a baby, as a little baby? Because he was a handsome little baby, in that sense beautiful that they did not want to do it? Or was there something more? Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, here we'll read about what Stephen, a holy and righteous man, a believer in Christ, what Stephen said to his enemies who were almost, uh, they were about to put him to death. This is what Stephen says in reference to Moses and the people. Acts chapter 7, verse 17. Acts 7, 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, He defended him and took vengeance of the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he, that is Moses, verse 25, and he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Notice a couple of points here. The first one is in verse 20, Acts 7, verse 20 that says that Moses was lovely in the sight of God. When Exodus 2.2, Hebrews 11.23, when they both say that he was beautiful, it doesn't mean that he was beautiful in a physical way as though they were fixated on the physical. It was beautiful in the sight of God or to God. God considered Moses beautiful. But still, in what way? And I believe it is in a spiritual way he considered him beautiful. Why do we say so? Look at verse 25. 
Moses knew the will of God, but the people did not. Verse 25, And he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Moses knew when he was an adult that Moses, he, he himself, was the chosen deliverer of the people. That Moses, once he reached a certain age, it would be time for him to be used by God to deliver the people as their leader, commander, prophet, and priest to deliver them out of Egypt. He knew that, according to Stephen. He knew that, and they, they knew, his parents knew, that in the sight of God, to God, Moses was a chosen child. Moses was a chosen son to carry out this work of God. His parents knew it. His parents knew it. They had to have known it. This is why they did what they did. Now, one more verse to eliminate the possibility that we're talking about the physical appearance of Moses is in 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 16, you may remember that a new king was to be chosen to replace Saul, and Samuel was going to find among the sons of Jesse one of the sons who would be the next king. And Samuel thought, because David was handsome, beautiful, because he was ruddy, because he had a good physique, because he was tall, because of all of this, that he was the one. But what does God say to him? 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then you may say, how could his parents know that Moses, as an infant, was chosen by God? Well, Stephen tells us that Moses knew, and by the actions of the parents, Hebrews 11.23 says, by faith. By faith they did this. So they must have had faith in the word of God revealed to them. Hebrews 11.23 says. So they were looking for the will of God in their infant son to be fulfilled. Moreover, you may ask, well, how could it be that an infant would be chosen of God? Or there would be a manifestation of him being chosen of God? Do you remember John the Baptist and what the scripture says of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1? Turn with me to Luke chapter 1 and we'll see. Luke chapter 1. Remember that Elizabeth was past childbearing and God miraculously gave Elizabeth a son, and she was carrying John, her son, John the Baptist, in the womb. She was carrying her, uh, her son in the womb, and she goes, or Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Mary and Elizabeth. And notice what it says. In first we'll read chapter 1, verse 15, the prophecy of it. Luke 1, 15. For he, John, John the Baptist, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Then, once Elizabeth is pregnant and carrying John the Baptist, verse 39, Luke 1, 39, 39 says, Now at this time Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby, that's John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. John the Baptist. The baby, John the Baptist, leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. John the Baptist, God made him aware of what was happening in the womb. He leaped for joy, which means God miraculously did this. And this is likely what happened with Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses. God revealed his word to them, gave them some indication that Moses was chosen of God, chosen for salvation, but also chosen to be the deliverer of the people. This is what Hebrews eleven twenty three means. It was a spiritual, a primarily a spiritual consideration that the parents of Moses had. This is why he says, and shows this as an example, an instant of faith, of true faith. Furthermore, we see here in Hebrews eleven twenty three, they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of the king's edict, his decree, his command. He issued a law that these boys should be destroyed. He issued that law, and they were not afraid of it, he says. This teaches us something. If you read... Exodus chapters 1 and 2, if you read it superficially, if you read it casually, you would think that they were afraid. That they were afraid of the king's edict. You would think that by their actions, they were terrified as to what might happen. But if you read it carefully, you see that the two midwives were not afraid. They were willing to risk their lives to fear God rather than to fear man. And in the same way, Moses' parents were willing to fear God rather than to fear man. They were willing to do that. And even Miriam, the older sister of Moses, strategically was there by the Nile to be able to recommend to Pharaoh's daughter, it says there in the text, Moses' sister was there. And she's the one that mentioned to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I get for you a nurse to take care of this baby that you want to save out of the river? Can I get a a nurse? And then what did Miriam, Moses' sister, older sister, do? She went and called her mother. Miriam's mother, Jochebed, the mother of Moses. And then she was able to raise Moses up in the house, in her own household, until he was old enough to go into the court of Pharaoh and be trained in all the learning and education of the Egyptians. All of this shows that they had faith. They were orchestrating things based on what they knew to be the right thing to do, the will of God, 
And they made it so that the, Moses' life was spared, but not only spared, but because they had faith. They had faith. Miriam, we know from Exodus 15, 20, at some point in her life, we don't know how old she was, older than Moses, but she was older than Moses because she was old enough to dialogue and with Pharaoh's daughter. And so, so she must have been older than just five or ten years old. Why would Pharaoh's daughter listen to a five-year-old or a ten-year-old? She must have been older than that. And according to Exodus 15, 20, Miriam was a prophetess. She was a prophet of God. Just as Moses was a prophet of God, she was a prophetess, a female prophet, in Exodus 15, 20. There also we have the faith of Miriam, the faith of the, the parents, and the fact that they certainly would have had knowledge of the will of God in that situation to carry out the will of God. So, having fixed in their mind, knowing in their mind what the will of God was, what the word of God was for that dilemma, they were willing to reject the king's edict and to obey God. This is the kind of faith they had. They did not fear man. They did not fear man. This teaches us to read our Bibles carefully and not to quickly or too quickly impugn sin or charge sin against the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the Bible. We should not do that. We have to have very circumspect and sober-minded interpretations of the Bible and understand exactly and amass and collect these passages that help to explain one passage will help to explain another passage. This is what we must do. In the practice of interpretation, this is called the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture. You analyze Scripture by studying one passage in reference to another passage when they're dealing with the same subject. Make sure you compare one Scripture with another Scripture. This is what we must do. To avoid charging the parents of Moses with a lack of faith. Here we cannot do it because our apostle tells us they were not afraid. They were not afraid. And we cannot charge them with that. And also, by the way, another major aspect of interpretation is to practice the analogy of faith. Analogy of faith means analyze the doctrines of the faith based on various passages so that we not let what one passage says about God, about Christ, about salvation, about man, that we not allow any doctrine, any truth, any teaching that the Bible says in one place contradict another place. So if the Bible teaches that the Father possesses deity, the Son possesses deity, the Holy Spirit possesses deity, we cannot use another passage to say Jesus does not possess deity or the Holy Spirit is just the wind. We cannot say that. We have to acknowledge what the Bible says on any doctrine, any teaching, any theology, any morality by comparing one passage to another and never let the Bible contradict because it doesn't. All given by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this teach us in summary? What have we learned? We have learned as we just said, to carefully interpret the Bible. Scripture with Scripture, doctrine with doctrine, to carefully interpret the Bible. Many people think that they are wonderful and swell interpreters of the Bible, but they have no shame 
to blurt out and to speak up about what they think without calmly, so, uh, soberly sitting down with an open Bible and looking carefully at what the text of Scripture actually says. May we do so. May we be like that. May we, we be so careful and so God-fearing that we not even dare, not even deign to misinterpret a single verse. May we never do so for our own sin or to justify some action of somebody else. May we never do so. Never. Furthermore, we've learned that we must fear God. Fear God above man. And do not fear, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, we will be persecuted. Yes, people will malign us. People will slander us. People will betray us. People will do these kinds of things. But we should not be afraid of that. We ought to fear God. Fear God. Keep the fear of God front and center always. That's what Jesus taught us. In Matthew 10, 28, he's telling us, his disciples, when we go out and preach in the world, people will be against us, but we should not be afraid of those people. Fear God. Because God's able to destroy soul and body in hell. And also, we need to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. This relates to the preservation of life here, in Moses' case, and even all the Hebrew male children, the preservation of life. Whenever there is anyone, anyone causing us to be bewildered, anyone causing us to doubt, anyone causing us to be off the beaten path of righteousness, off the highway of holiness, as Isaiah says, whenever there is anyone who is trying to turn us away from that, we have to keep first and foremost in front of us the love of God and love of man, or love of neighbor. Love of God. God told me this or that about my dilemma. I will not listen to man, but I will love God by obeying God with my whole heart, my whole soul, my whole mind, my whole strength. I will use my whole being to love him and not put the love of man in front of God. Love of God is supreme. Whenever God says, whatever God wants, that should be first in my life. This is the first and foremost commandment, Jesus said. This is the greatest of all the commandments, to make sure that our life is conformed to loving God with our whole being. This is what God wants, to love Him. And then, how is the love of God manifested? How is it manifested? It is manifested in loving our neighbor as ourself. Is it not? If we do not love our neighbor as ourself, or in 1 John, to love our brother, if we are not doing so, then how can we say the love of God remains in us? We can't say that. In fact, John tells us that it is impossible. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. 4.19 We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If, anyone, if someone says, 
I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, our ability to love God only comes because God first loved us. That's what verse 19 says. That's what we sang earlier in our previous song, that we loved him because he first loved us. But then, there are many, many, many people who say, I love God. Many, many people who say that. But look at 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. God calls those people who hate their brother liars. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How can we say that we love the invisible God when we don't love the visible brother? It's impossible to love the invisible God when we hate the visible brother. We have to love the visible brother to prove, to manifest, to demonstrate that we truly love the invisible God. That's what he says here. He says we cannot, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, in the case of Moses' parents, who were their closest neighbor? Or who were, or who was in our example, the closest brother or the closest relative, both physically and spiritually? It was their own family, their own children, right? Moses' parents, in order to practice this love of God, were to first manifest it in, their, in the lives of their own children, to love them, to preserve them physically, and also to teach them spiritually. Preserve them physically to provide for their needs. In Moses' case, to provide for his physical protection. That's how love is demonstrated. If parents do not do that for their children, if they're not loving them and protecting them physically from danger, then, and providing for them physically, that is food and drink, food and clothing, with food and covering, with these we shall be content. If they're not doing that, then they are derelict parents. They're not showing true love of their children. But spiritually speaking, Moses' parents cared for Moses' spiritual upbringing too. And so should we. They loved Moses by teaching him while he was in their house. Remember, through that turn of events, he ended up being raised in his own mother's house until he was old enough to go into the court of Pharaoh. When they had him in the home, they certainly, most certainly, would have taught him the word of God. They would have prayed with him. They would have talked about who the true God is, the gospel of Christ. They would have taught him to believe in Christ. And we do know that he did, in fact, believe in Christ because it tells us in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 24, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 26 says that Moses was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches. Moses was taught Christ 
from his childhood and taught Christ by his parents. It had to be the case. They had faith in Christ, so he would have had faith in Christ and believed in the reproach of Christ. That is the death and humiliation of Christ. That's what they would have taught him and he believed. So too with us. If we're going to truly love our own family, our closest neighbors, whether it's siblings, whoever, in our own family, we will teach them the Word of God. We will pray for them to grow up in the things of God, for them to believe the true gospel of Christ. This is what we will do. Let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll grant us this kind of faith, the faith that endures even in the face of death. May we not be threatened by the thought of death, physical death, persecution, people mistreating us, saying bad words against us, denying us, uh, not being our friends anymore, whatever it may mean. We pray that you will not allow that to happen to us. We also ask you, Lord, to enable us to show uh, others how to preserve life, both in the physical sense and, and especially for those who claim to be the people of God, that they would truly preserve innocent human life and that they would provide for their own children. We pray that among us, that we will also be mindful of the fact of what our duties are with our own children, especially, Father, in the spiritual matters of life. May we not neglect it. May we not relegate it to someone else to do, but may we take it upon ourselves to do so. Teach us, Lord, to obey your commandments, to fear no one but you, and to love no one supremely except you. In Christ, amen.